kind of the, the cause and effect in our world. If you're wise, things will go well. Uh, if you're a fool, things will go badly. It's not exactly locked in, but it's more about the way the world should normally work. The book of Job about uh, basically what happens when good people suffer, or people who don't deserve it suffer. How do you make sense of that? And Ecclesiastes, I think it's so much about looking for the meaning of life. It's more about what lasts, what has real value. Okay, so let's have a look. I'll, I'll walk you through it. I'll be on the screen or in your hand. So Ecclesiastes begins with this. The words of the preacher, son of David, uh, king in Jerusalem. Uh, the idea of this preacher, Kohelet, the, the original words, the idea of someone who speaks to an assembly, a, a group of people like this. And that's where Ecclesiastes comes from. It's the Greek word for the gathering or the assembly. Um, the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, now, who wrote Ecclesiastes? Well, we don't know for sure. It seems a good guess that it was, it was either Solomon or someone who's written through the eyes of Solomon. Solomon's the patron of the wisdom literature, the Proverbs, etc. He'll say he's the son of David, king in Israel. Later on in the end of chapter, later in chapter 1, he'll say, I was king in Jerusalem. Uh, So Solomon, and I'm calling Solomon on the way way through these three talks. All right, so what does he say? Uh, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And what does that mean? Has everyone got an ESV Bible, pretty much? Okay, right, that's what I was told. This word here is uh, vanity. It's really hard to translate. I'm no Hebrew scholar. It's really hard to translate into English. The NIV Bible has gone for meaningless. That's not quite right. This is a good translation. Once you understand what they're trying to... It's the Hebrew word hebel. There's the Australian way to say it, right? Hebel. What it means is this. It's a mist or a vapour. You come out in the morning and it's cold and you've got kind of mist on the ground and then by an hour, what, 10 o'clock in the morning or something, the mist is gone. It's the idea of something that's, that's transient. It, it's there and then it's gone. And what he's saying is everything is like that. There's nothing that really lasts. There's nothing that, like, everything he looks at is it's here and then it doesn't, it's, it's not substantial. It's like smoke or mist or, and that's the way of the world. And when he says vanity of vanities, <coughs> the way in here is to put those two words together, it's like if you're a Bible reader or you're used to the Bible, you heard the Holy of Holies, okay? the most holy place. Or the Song of Solomon is also called the Song of Songs, meaning a kind of the Song of All Songs, the most beautiful thing, or the, the most holy of holies, or uh, popular culture, dumb and dumber, okay, the dumbest of the dumb. He's saying. Everything's hebel, hebel. There's nothing that lasts. There's nothing that's permanent. Now that's where he starts, that, that feeling of nothing really lasts. And so he sets out to ask, let me get this right, sets out to ask a question in verse 3, and this comes up again and again in the 12 chapters of the book. What does man, people, man, right? What does man gain by all the toil of which he toils under the sun? Now if, you, if you get this, you'll get what the book's all about. So when it says, what, um, man, what do they gain? Gain's like a commercial term. What's the, what's the bottom line? What's the cash value? What's the, what's the take home? What, what are you left with that has real value for all the hard work that you do under the sun? 
you work really hard, what, what's the takeaway? What's left? What's valuable? What's the bottom line? And here, this little phrase, under the sun, 20, where are we? 27 times, I think it is. Um, 27 times in the book he says this. And here's where it becomes important. What he means is, as you just look out at the world under the sun and try and make sense of it, what do you see? There's no... In the book of Ecclesiastes, as if he's closed his Bible, there's no special revelation. Just how do you make sense of the world? Now, it's not about being an atheist, saying, you know, you've got intuitions about God, you know God's there, but you try and make sense of the world, what do you see? And so he'll say things that don't fit exactly with the rest of the Bible. We're going to see in um, After Morning Tea, he'll say, people die just like the animals, and who knows where their spirit goes. What do you do if you've got the rest of the Bible open? But just under the sun, it does look like we die like the animals. Yeah, okay? Right, I'd be happy if I forget half the people nod. <laughs> does, does that make sense? Yeah? Okay, we've got about 60... All right, that'll do. A few screensavers going on already. Okay, so what's he saying? First of all, he starts out, well, let's have a look at kind of just a general look at what the world feels like. And my guess is it feels different if you're on the, um, you know, the, the older side of 50 versus if you're on the younger side of 30. It's going to feel quite different. But here we go. Let, let's have a look at what he says. This is the way the world feels under the sun. You just look out, what do you see? Well, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Like, we come, we go, the earth remains forever. A little bit of experience of this lately. This, I don't know if you can see that. That's, Kathy and I went on a, a holiday to uh, the Flinders Ranges, which is basically about five hours' drive north of Adelaide. Uh, it doesn't really do it just the way we see. Uh, Will Pina Pound, is this like volcano thing about 10 miles around, and... Kathy's a bushwalking machine, so we walked right up the top of this thing. Um, oh, it took hours, and she like she just loved, happy wife, happy life, right? So she just loves bushwalking. So we've done this really hardcore bushwalk right up to the top of this mountain, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, I've done this. I don't have cool it. We get up there, and there's a family there with about a six-year-old kid eating an apple. It's just on the same walk. <laughs> right. Anyway, so we did this walk. You can see forever, and um, yes, yeah, she was cold that day. But I couldn't help but think, there's this mountain range, and it's like, it's been there for like forever. And I couldn't help but think, I'm only here for like five minutes. Generations come, generations go, and what? We're, we're bugs hitting the windscreen of eternity. We're, we're nothing. We just, we come, we go, we, you know? And not only that, it's like nothing. Oh, no, I was going to show you. This is a Wilpina homestead in the middle of kind of the... The volcano, and that's an old, that's a little brick, little brick square house that was built. And there's a really sad story on, on a series of kind of boards that the National Park have put together, all about the homestead and the family who tried to make it work. And this girl, Jessie Hill, can't really see the photo of her there, tells the story of how, for probably 40, 50 years, her family tried to make this whole thing work. They they had thousands of sheep and they overstocked and then there was drought and the sheep died and then they tried to grow crops and there was rain and they couldn't get them into town and basically they worked themselves to death and everything's gone and we'll paint a pound, the mountain just sits there still because we're only here for five minutes. Or, it says, all streams run into the sea. 
but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. Everything's, it happens again and again, but nothing ever changes and the sea's never full and the world feels like... In Sydney, we have a big bridge. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, it was opened in the 1930s and there's a bunch of guys employed to paint it. And they started one end and it takes so long to paint it that by the time they painted it fully, guess what they have to do? They go back to the beginning and they paint it again and they paint it again. And at the end of their life's work, nothing's happened. It's just gone round and round and that's what they do. And he says, that, and he says under the sun, that's what it feels like. Nothing ever changes, nothing ever happens. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What's he saying? You can get bored with anything, really. You ever been on those amusement parks, like, you know, Dreamworld or whatever? We went to Disneyland in America when the kids were little. Okay. Um, uh, in, in Disneyland, at the amusement parks, the staff are polite and bored. Okay? In Australia, the staff are just bored. Okay? <laughs> and you can be on the biggest roller coaster. They're bored out of their brain. Did you notice the big hoo-ha recently about Bernard Tomic at Wimbledon? He said, I'm bored. Public outrage at bored tennis brat Bernard Tomic's behaviour. And I thought, public outrage? I'm not outraged. The poor young bloke, he's, he's hit like a billion tennis balls back over the net since he was three years old. That's what he's done his whole life. And he says, oh, I was a bit bored. Why, what? I'll tell you why. Because sport is God, and you're not allowed to be bored with God. Oh, boy, if he was bored at that... Of course he is. Boom, 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 boom. All right. Now, you can get bored with anything. Here is St. Catherine <laughs> and the barramundi that she caught. I oh, sorry. My wife, Cathy. Right. Have a look at that. Now, I am the world's worst fisherman. We went... I, by the way, we're not always on holidays. This is just... You know, like, just <laughs> <laughs> we, went, we went and I paid... I am the world's worst fisherman. So we paid a huge amount of money and this, barramundi, this fishing guide took us out for the day. And this fish committed suicide on the line and Kathy's wound it in and there was a whole lot of screaming and, and, and giggling and all that. And she was pretty excited too. And um, no, no, she got it in. We got the fish in it. Guess what? The guide. He was really excited too. No, he wasn't. He was bored out of his brain. Couldn't wait to finish. Get back. Like kind of, he was polite, but it was just another day at the office. And that's dull. He's not excited. You get bored with anything. Right. Uh, or travel. I was going to say travel. Now, it doesn't matter how you travel, whether you're like a very cool backpacker or the guys with the cameras or this guy. There's... Interesting, you can get the travel bug and you want to travel. But here's the irony. More travel doesn't cure the travel bug, does it? It just makes it worse. And so when Solomon says, if you have a look, what verse is it? Um, uh, the eye never has enough... Um, uh, verse 7 about... The eye never has its fill of seeing. I think about people who want to travel all the time. I've just shown you all my travel photos. But it's never enough. Or it said the ear always wants to hear more, um, nor the ear filled with hearing. Here's a question for you. <coughs> why do we need new songs all the time? I mean, you young guys, why do you need new songs all the time? Wait, haven't we got enough? I had to check out how many songs do you reckon have been recorded uh, in the last, like since the 19, uh, well, I'm sorry, it's just a very sensitive. Uh, where are we? Oh, no, I know, I had to, like this, television. 
television. I am old enough to remember when television started, or when we first got a TV, early 60s, I'm like four years old. And when TV arrived, it was these little kind of black and white things, you know, you'd sit there and you'd watch it. And um, in our place, we had two remote controls. That was me and my brother. My dad used to say, yeah, change your channel, put on channel nine, put on channel seven, put on seven. Uh, there was no, now I've got a remote control, that's fine. But there was four channels. And often, there was nothing to watch. I said, why? Because television actually stopped. No, true. It's like 10 o'clock at night, we go, and it'd be like a test pattern. That's it. Okay, and all well, because we go to bed then, I guess, because there's nothing to watch. Now, We've got digital TV, we've got 24 hours a day, and we've got Netflix, right? Thousands of television shows. You stand there, you know what? I regularly sit down with the remote and look, and guess what? There's nothing to watch. That's right. A billion times. Because the eye never has enough of seeing. Or, you're going to say the ear is not filled with hearing. Here's what I wanted to ask you about. Why do we need new songs all the time? Why do we, like, I looked it up. Uh, the iTunes library, Spotify and others um, compromise a tiny fraction of the history of recorded music. 26 million digital songs already recorded. Now, why, why do we need more? Why can't we just say, well, thanks, we've got enough. That's 26 million songs that you guys keep wanting to have new ones, you young ones. If I could say, you actually really only need two albums. Bruce Springsteen's greatest hits and born in the US. That's it. You don't need... I have no of either of them. What was that? I have no of either of them. Yeah. Oh. Right. We've got some education to do. All right. Okay. So you get bored. point is, you get bored with anything. You look at anybody who gives up their, their particular job to go and pursue their hobby as a, partic- you know, as a job. They're bored. You get bored with anything. Okay, what else have you got to say? What has been will be again. I'm oh, sorry, what has been will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it is said, see, this is new, it has been already in ages before us. Just saying there's nothing new, day by day. The newspapers, the news is exactly the same. Maybe the names change a little bit, but you look, this year's newspapers are the same as last year's newspapers, or be the same as next year's newspapers. And all the carry-on about you know, the economy and what's going to happen and the economy rises. You know what, you look at a little bit of economic history, the economy goes up, the economy goes down, there's a crisis, and up and down it goes and nothing ever changes. I went to Wikipedia and I asked, OK, financial crisis... Uh, that's just since the year 2000, and there's a list so long that I won't even bother. <coughs> I, um, I won't even read it out. There's a there's a financial crisis somewhere in the world every year, and it's a big carry on, and and nothing ever happens, nothing ever changes. You might think, I oh, wonder that. You might think, oh no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Technology, technology's what's changed. Think, well, yeah, in a way, but here's a, let me give you maybe a different way of looking at it. For the last however many thousand years, technology has got bigger and better and faster. Um, wrote this sentence, where are we? From the uh, fishing net to the internet, from the weaver's shuttle to the space shuttle, from the steam engine to the search engine. And you know what? Hasn't solved their problems. It's easier to communicate across the world now than across a breakfast table sometimes. You can have a thousand friends on Facebook and be desperately lonely. 
technology gets faster and faster, but it hasn't fixed things. So, if you're fairly happy, uh, you're bored, nothing ever changes, and here's the other thing, no one will remember you. Uh, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the latter things yet to be among those who come after. Now, that's the ESV. The, the NIV puts it just a slightly different way. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. What's Solomon saying? No one will remember you. Oh, is it? Well, now, don't say out loud. Don't say out loud. Just raise your hand if you uh, remember these guys. Does anyone know who um, these? John Watson, George Reed, Andrew Fisher, Joseph Cook. Don't say that. Anyone want to raise your hand? One. Well, uh, two. Two in 50. Okay. So, what? 1% of people. Um, they were Prime Ministers of Australia. And we do not remember. Okay. Um, even if you're Prime Minister, no one's going to remember. They go, oh, no, wait. Um, my family will remember me. No, they won't. Kathy's, okay. um, with respect, Kathy's granddad got on a boat from uh, Canton and um, thought he was going to the Californian gold fields and they took him to Papua New Guinea and said, get off. And so that, that's, that's why Kathy was born in, in New Guinea. My great-great-grandfather got on a boat from the Isle of, the Isle of Skye in Scotland. And he died of typhus on the boat. And his wife arrived, Janet McSween, his wife, died, uh, sorry, arrived in Australia, age 36, with seven kids. And the second youngest was six years old. He's my great-great-grandfather. Now, that, that's a pretty good story. But you tell my kids, our kids, that? They don't want to know. My son went, our son went to the Isle of Skye. Um, a couple of weeks ago. Did you see where you grew it? Oh, we drove through it, but um, we're not really. Hey, they don't care. And that's if you have great-great-grandchildren. You'll be forgotten quicker than that if, uh, if you don't. Right. No, one, no one will remember. No one will care. No one will. Um, so, uh, aren't you glad you came along today? What have I told you so far? The earth goes on forever. Uh, we're only here for five minutes. Uh, you'll be bored while you are, and no one will remember you. Okay. But isn't that, this is, remember, this is under the sun, under the sun. If you do turn to another part of the Bible, isn't that what uh, the, the book of James tells us? James tells us in the New Testament, come now, you say today or tomorrow, uh, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. James says, good to take it to heart. Good to take it to heart. We're only here for a very little while. Well, why is it that way? It's interesting that we, um, uh, as you talk to people, whether they're believers or not, people feel this kind of angst about life. There should be meaning and purpose. We should feel like life lasts. We should have some kind of that what we do and what we believe is valuable. Why this kind of angst in our world? I think the New Testament actually tells us that God's done it, that God's put this... It's that feeling of futility in our world. So you go to Romans chapter... Romans chapter 20, and Paul tells us this, that the creation was subjected to futility 
it, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. I think God's put this feeling in our world to, to actually drive us to look for him. When they, um, this, this word, in the, as Paul wrote it in the, uh, in the Greek New Testament, futility, matiates, or however you pronounce it, matiates, is exactly the same words. When they came to translate the Old Testament into Greek, uh, they used that, that same word to translate the vanity or the hebel word. So life feels hebel, um, futile, meaningless, a vapour, and Paul's saying, yeah, that's right. And God's done that. He's done that to make us look, look to him. So how do you, what do you make sense though? Because that's just the, that's just the beginning. Um, it's not all that bad. Uh, it actually gets much worse. Uh, so what, how do you make sense of the rest of the book? Well, Solomon was the richest and in many ways the wisest man of the ancient world. And he sets out to try and find the answer. Under the sun, what is it that really lasts? What gives life meaning and purpose? What has lasting value huh? under the sun? And so the rest of the book, and you might I hope you'll read it over time, but you see chapter 1, verse 12, he says this. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So life, there's a, there's a lot of misery out there, a lot of, uh, a lot of heartache. I've seen everything that he's done, when? Under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What's he saying? It's all a mist, it's all a vapour, nothing, nothing lasts. And then he has a, there's a little proverb that he quotes. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. You know, every election time, whether it's here or in some other country, the politicians come along and they talk about how they're going to change things and fix everything and kind of... And I know they mean it. But once you've been through around the block a few times, you think, yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. It's, a, it's not going to change. Because you, you can't change it. Remember the massive enthusiasm in 2008 when Barack Obama's elected and the, the world's going to change and he's going to... It didn't. I'm not having to go Barack Obama, I'm just saying, what is that? You can't straighten out some of our problems. The waste and inefficiency and bureaucracy and in, even in the, Western, in the Western world the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and... Do you know, uh, it was in the Australian newspaper about a week ago, one of the commentators said, there's 225,000 children in Australia at risk from abuse or neglect last year. 225,000 in this country with all our wealth. There's just some things you can't ever fix. So he says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And so I should be able to find the answer, I guess, is what he's saying. He said... And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. Why? For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What's he saying? Generally, the more you learn about the world, the more heartache and sorrow there is. That's why little kids are really happy. Because they're dumb. They don't know anything yet. Or no, let me put it a better way. 
because life hasn't bitten them yet. But it will. But it will. And study doesn't... Study and everything doesn't necessarily make you happier, of course. I mean, I remember I studied at university. The philosophy students, they weren't the happy ones. They walked around big books with morbid, kind of thought. The ones who enjoy themselves, what? It's the engineers. Drank beer and played football. They didn't think about anything. That was the... They were the happiest. All right. So what does he do? He says... Uh, let's have a look. The rest of the book is really thinking about under the sun, how to live. And so the rest of chapter 2, I'll go through a little bit of it very quickly. He says, okay, well, let's have a look. Maybe you can find the answer. Maybe you can find something that lasts and something that has purpose. And the first one he looks at is pleasure. Okay? Hedonism. Let, let's live for pleasure and, and find if that's the answer. It's the answer that most Australians would give. So he says, I said in my heart, come now, I'll, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. And notice, he's not a misery guts. What I, what I mean by that? He's not saying pleasure's wrong. He's just saying, this also was... Remember this word, Hegel? It doesn't last. What he's going to say is, living for pleasure... Yeah, your pleasure's good, but it's like splashing your face with cold water. It's there and then it's gone or water that runs through your hands when you try and pick it up. But he says, okay, well, let's have a look. He says, I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? The laughter, yeah, but it doesn't... Yeah. Laughter's like shock absorbers on your car. It just kind of takes the pain out of life a little. Even laughter, sorry, even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. There's one of the proverbs... Um, <coughs> Proverbs 14, sorry, yeah. It's, um, you may be laughing on the outside. Often laughter actually disguises heartache for people. It's all right, though. He's the richest man in the world. Let's have a look and see what pleasure can deliver. So, I search with my heart to know and to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly so I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. What's he mean? Kind of unravel that. He's saying, well, I partied on for a while. Let's drink and party and whatever. And but ultimately, it doesn't last. It doesn't deliver. So I made, or what about if you, had, if you had all the money in the world, what would you do with it? He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I, made si I, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Uh, concubines is like... Reserve grade wives, okay? So, so Solomon had something like 700 wives and 300 concubines or whatever. Um, maybe not that wise, but he had it all. Okay? And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wi and also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Well, my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. This is kind of, if you like, 
getting there and getting the stuff, yep, that was satisfying, etc. That was uh, that was fun. If you could really indulge, see what I think what we what we can think is this. If I if I just had more stuff in whatever it is for you, if I just had more stuff or better stuff or whatever, then I'd be satisfied. Solomon's saying he had all the money in the world and he had whatever he wanted. Now, what would you do that? Well, here's, um, here's Bill Gates. And when I put this together, he was the world's richest man. But I saw yesterday, I'm at the gym and one of the banners that went through a TV, the guy who started Amazon, Be- Be- Bezos, Jeff Bezos? Bezos, yeah. Bezos, he's the world's richest man now. Bill's only second. Yeah, that's right. Um, it only lasted a few seconds and Bill Gates was Oh, is he? Right, oh, okay, right. <laughs> Bezos' shares dropped suddenly right after that. Ah, uh, okay, good. Well, a bit worried we might have to whip the hat around for Bill. Um, by the way, I'm not having a go at him. He's giving billions of dollars to the Gates Foundation and you know, all sorts of things. But I, I looked up about his house. If you had, what's he worth, $100 billion or something now? Just, I don't know, whatever. It's a massive amount of money. His house near Seattle... Um, Cost billions of dollars. I don't know if you can see the photo, um, in the, the photos properly, but uh, you know there's the kind of there's the uh, the foyer entrance, and that's uh, it's got a couple of shots of the pool as they look out and over the city of Seattle. Um, that's the master bedroom, and then the master bathroom, and they've got a um, a bedroom that's underneath the uh, the aquarium. Um, as you need one of those, uh, and then there's the there's the digital aquarium. Uh, as you walk through his home, they give you a pin, um, a, a coded pin. As you walk into a room, there's pictures that you like will appear, and the music you like will appear, uh, will play as well in the different rooms. Uh, and um, oh, there's the garage, uh, and uh, the swimming pool has an underwater sound system, so that as you're swimming, you can actually hear the sounds that you, the, the music that you want. Okay, so that's Bill, and good luck to him. I thought about indulgence. Eventually, rich people run out of things to spend money on. Okay, well, like you only sleep in one bed at a time, you only eat one bed. The most indulgent thing I've ever seen or ever heard about, Aristotle Onassis was a Greek billionaire, um, he's dead now. This is his yacht, the Christina. And if you're wondering what to spend your money on when you run out of things, in the bar, in the Christina, the bar stools were covered with Aristotle Onassis yacht, complete with bar stools upholstered in whale foreskin. So that's how much money he had that he could afford to have whale foreskins to um, upholster the, uh, the seats in the bar in his yacht. Okay, well, maybe that doesn't grab you. <laughs> what does Solomon say at the end? He says, and then I, I think he does something that many people don't ever do. They, he actually, if you like, steps off the treadmill. And he says this, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and all the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, or hebel, or a mist, or a vapour and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It was just like stuff, and it didn't deliver. 
You know what, isn't it, isn't it a bit like that? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm as guilty of this as anyone. But don't you find you look, you look forward to getting something and, and you think, when I get it, yeah, right, so whether that's, um, I don't know, the clothes or uh, computer games or Netflix or, or whatever it is, and you get it, and it's just ordinary in about five minutes. I remember looking forward, I had a, a brand new V8 Commodore. I got to, to get that. And uh, I had to wait about eight weeks for it to arrive. I thought, oh yeah, when it arrives, it'll be good. And then I got it, and then within a week, it was just like baldy headed me driving around the car. You know, like it just. And it'll be like that. And whatever, you know, the things that you had to have, and now they just hang in a cupboard, or you waited for whatever it is, and it just doesn't ever quite deliver. It's not that those things are wrong. It's just that you make them the meaning of the point to life. They never, they never deliver. Where I come, where Kathy and I live, the big thing is real estate. So um, every week there's a 100-page <coughs> local newspaper delivered. It's basically real estate pornography. And it's delivered right through the eastern suburbs. And people think that and it's the meaning of life. You can be an individual if you just get the right house like one of those from the air and Solomon saying I waited, I looked and it just wasn't it didn't deliver now maybe the answer is in being wise then, in, in study and in gaining wisdom, so just let me quickly, see verse 12 he says so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king only what has already been done then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and it's better to be wise than a fool, as there is more gain in light than darkness. Why? The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to the more sorry, the same event happens to all of them. But it's better to be wise than a fool, it's like walking in the light rather than the darkness. The same event, well. And here's, uh, here's four very learned men. <coughs> Albert Einstein, the physicist. Edwin Hubble, the astronomer. Uh, the Hubble telescope, named after him. William Shockley, the inventor of the transistor. And Bertrand Russell, mathematician and philosopher. Now, what do they all have in common? Well, they're all old white guys. Uh, they all made the Time magazine great philosopher and thinkers and scientists list of the 20th century. Anyone pick the other thing they all have in common? Well done, but they're all dead. That's right, exactly. They're all dead. That's exactly what Solomon says. For the wise as of the fool, so for of the wise as of the fool, there is no ending remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. And so they'll die. Um so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind saying that if you live just for this there's massive frustration built into the world um, now he goes on if you look later at the rest of chapter 2 he talks about well maybe it's found in work and achievement and you can read that later on, it's, it's pretty clear. He says what the, the frustrations there are. <coughs> and here's the good news. We, sorry, 
I reckon it's good to, uh, to read this and engage with it because it's very <coughs> easy to be sucked into thinking and, and living under the sun. But life's about the stuff that you have or enough achievement or if I just have more. Or I, and Solomon's saying, I had it all and I did it all and it, it didn't deliver. And we don't live just under the sun. We actually live with the wisdom of God. If you open the rest of the Bible... It's a whole new way to see the world and to understand it. Um, and in fact, the irony is God says through the world's wisdom and I actually never understand the key to what life's all about. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about that. He says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What does he mean? Paul says, where's the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? So all our philosophers and etc. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. See, what's he saying? It's not. It's not um, preaching as such this foolishness. Well, it might be, but it's not that. It's the idea of the message that's preached that seems foolish, that God saves people. Why? Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The great iron is this, uh, that the secret to life is found by knowing a crucified Jewish carpenter and understanding and believing how God's made the wisdom of the world foolish and through God's gospel that seems foolish, we can know him and make a whole new sense of life. Uh, chapter 3, he moves on to actually understanding time and how to try and make sense of that uh, and our world. Now, was I supposed to finish at 10.45? Thereabouts, yeah. Yep. All right, well done. Most of you stayed awake. Well done. Any any thoughts, questions, comments? One at a time, please. I know. Ten, ten. I guess the only time I really read Ecclesiastes, I just thought it was depressing. You just thought it was what, sorry? Depressing. Depressing? Yeah, that's it. Yep, yep. <laughs> In, in one way, in one way, yes. Okay. And that is, what, what he does is he just, he just keeps wiping away all the misconceptions that we have, all the, the toys that we want to play with, the things that we think will keep us amused or whatever. And he, he, he keeps kind of <coughs> knocking those things down. But I think what he... But it, there's another theme, and I'll, I'll show you that um, tomorrow, where he says, no, enjoy life. If you can. Enjoy what you can in life. There's, there's sad times and there's happy times and, and enjoy what you can. And I think once you understand this, you actually can enjoy the things in life more because you'll actually stop looking for the meaning of life. In the, you know, if you're a foodie, you, they're looking for the ultimate meaning of life and the, the ultimate meal or food or whatever. You'll never find it. If you're a wine buff, if you're looking for the ultimate meaning of life in the perfect bottle of wine, you'll never find it. If you're madly in love with someone, you think this relationship is going to be the meaning of life. 
he or she will always let you down. But it's, or when I get the new car, that'll be the meaning of life. But once you realise it won't deliver, and you'll only actually find real satisfaction in knowing God, and that's where he ends up, then you can relax and enjoy those things more. Because <coughs> they're not perfect, and they're not the meaning of life. But you actually relax and think, well, it's not perfect, but hey, it's good. Do, do you know what I mean? So it's, it's like hard medicine, and at the end of it, you can enjoy life more. <coughs> and yes, there's lots of it that's really depressing. I hope tomorrow morning I'll thoroughly depress you. <laughs> and you get home happy. Do you reckon there's more... Oh, sorry. Oh, Do you reckon there's more sadness now than there was... Prior to now. Is there more sadness like, now there than seems to be more suicide now and like is it is there more folly than there used to be? Yeah, a couple a couple of um, a couple of thoughts on that. In one sense I don't know that around the world there is now more misery or pain than there ever was necessarily. It's just we hear about it more. So that the, the media or the social media or the internet, you're actually able to pick up pretty much every bad thing that happens around the world and drop it into you know, your phone or your television or, or what we hear about it. I don't think there's more natural disasters now than there used to be, but just you hear about every natural disaster so very quickly. But what is very sad is that in the Western world, I think, as we've got richer and richer, and you make a good case, the way that we've got richer is because of the Christian worldview makes the creation of wealth possible. As we got richer and richer, we've walked more and more away from God, which is what the Bible warns about, and life has become emptier and emptier. And I'm not exactly sure of the stats, but I think the biggest killer of young men is now suicide. You know, the suicide rates are uh, astoundingly high so high that the government is reluctant to publish them. It's hard to get the, the current suicide rates. So I think there and there's an emptiness, um, especially among young ones as well. There's an emptiness, a spiritual vacuum that's there. And then we wonder why we've got some of these kids who have got nothing to live for, and life is empty. And why Islam and that extremism stuff? You know, oh, how could he ever possibly been drawn? Well, I'll tell you why, because he's a shell and he's looking for something to fill himself up with. So, it's always been there, but wealth and prosperity <coughs> has not fixed it. In some ways, making it worse. Uh, sir? Very good question. Why, why is this written? Um, yeah, generally he never actually says it's Solomon, but either it is Solomon or we're meant to read it as Solomon. Okay. Um, why does he write this? I think it's, it's sometimes it's autobiographical. It, it is his journey. I did all of these things and then I... And we'll get to the end. And uh, verse 3... Vanity, vanity, or everything's vanity, and 12 verse 8 are bookends. They're exactly the same. And so after 12 chapters of looking for the answer, he says, I, there isn't one under the sun. Every, everything is Hebel. Why? Because we are. 
we are a mist or a vapour. And then there's the epilogue at the end when he actually talks about the commandments of... I'm stealing tomorrow's talk, but he talks about the commands of God for the first time and knowing God. And then there's one other fact that he talks about that means life has ultimate meaning. I won't... If you're here tomorrow morning, right? So I think it's the idea of... It's his journey and he's pushing us to see what's real, what matters, what's important. And he writes as a shepherd or a pastor at the end. So I think that's the point. It's good, it's good for us. And it's depressing and it's hard. And as you embrace it, you can em- enjoy life more, I think. Yeah? I found that a really fascinating... That's probably right where I'm at now, at the moment. Like, I find I'm struggling to um, find my why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? And I'll be honest, I come to church. I, I'm a, I love God. I want to get to know Him more, but I find that everything that doesn't satisfy me. So. What am, what, what am I missing? What am I, <coughs> I'm, I'm, I'm reading the Bible more now, I'm praying more, mm-hmm. trying to get to know mm-hmm. more. I'm like, but what am I missing? Like, I'm not satisfied. I'm like, I see joy in other people's eyes when they, when they worship God. Let's, have a, let's, let's take that one offline a little bit. Okay. His answer will come tomorrow about how do you find what really matters? How do you find what really lasts? And it's a mixture, I guess, of seeing what is really valuable and then also seeing the world clearly and I say very gently and carefully sometimes I have to adjust what I want and what I think is valuable and sometimes my expectations have been wrong about what what it does matter and what is important and how I find value and that sort of thing so but tomorrow morning when if you like he pushes and pushes and pushes and pushes until you get to the end, to the epilogue, those last five or six verses, and then he gives you the answer. But the way he writes, until you feel the pain of, oh, it doesn't work, it's all pain. Until you feel the pain, the, the answer doesn't satisfy. But if, you, if you're in a world and you do feel that there should be more than this and this pain and the... Um, yeah, it is. We live in a world that's... Under futility is what Romans says. That feeling. Yep. Okay. Well, I actually think Christendom today, especially the West, probably feeds that sort of frustration even more because it's not giving people the sense of we have to see the problem. You know, genuinely calling people to repentance and coming to Christ because they need their sins forgiven. And then they need to be like, okay, well, it's come to Jesus and all will be great. Like, they don't have a sense of, why am I coming? Why yep. am I at church? Yep. Why yep. Jesus hasn't yep. delivered? Yeah, that's right. The gospel is not, Jesus wants to be your life coach because you're awesome. That is not the gospel. Jesus died for your sins so you don't have to go to hell as you deserve and you can have eternal life with him. That's the gospel. That's right. But, but um, the gospel isn't always... Yeah, you should ask for your money back, I think. Yeah, that's right. And, of course, then, 
if someone promises you, come to Jesus and you'll be healthy, wealthy, beautiful, and you'll, you'll live this super-duper wonderful life, and that doesn't happen, then we think, oh, God's let me down. But the point is, no, no, God didn't promise. God just promised He'd save you and He'd make you like Jesus. And unfortunately, it's the hard things in life that mould you and teach you and mould your character. Yeah. All right, I'll go on all day. Great, thanks, Al. That was a great start. So, guys, we're just going to go to... We'll have some morning tea now, and then we'll back in about half an hour, 11.30, to uh, go again. So, if your parents, if you 